1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Performing Arts channel of New Books Network. Today I am delighted to have with us Professor Stanley Rabinovitz and his latest book from Oxford University Press and Then Came Dance, The Women Who Led Balinsky to Ballet's Magic Kingdom. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Professor.
0: Nice to be with you.
1: Could you please tell us a little bit of your background and what Brought you to write this book?
0: Well, it's a long story, but I'll tell it. Uh, My training is in Russian literature. So I have a degree in Slavic languages and literatures. And my research had always been in Russian literature, early 20th century, the Russian novel. And of course, then I made a very unpredicted and unexpected detour into dance. I have no training in dance. I never studied dance history. Uh, I like to watch dance, but it's not a passion of mine. And the story is, uh, in the late 80s, I was asked to write an article for a collection on Russian journalism of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. That is my specialty, late 19th and early 20th century literature. I chose a journal which was somewhat familiar with me I wrote the article, and as often is the case, I became intrigued by the subject matter. This journal was a modernist journal of the 1890s, uh, edited by a woman named Lyubov Gordievich. Well, I should do the uh, published by Gurievich and edited by Valinsky. Valinsky was a name I'd heard of and learned more about when I wrote this article on the journal, but I didn't know terribly much about him, and I decided on the basis of that short article, that I'd like to do more on this topic. And you know the joys of research. You don't always know where you're going. You don't know where it's going to take you. And boy, did I not know where this was going to take me. So I said to myself, I have a leave coming up. Maybe this was in the fall of 89. I'll go to Moscow for two months. I got a grant. This is where Walensky's archive is located although he never worked in Moscow. He was basically a Petersburg person. His archive was there. I went to Moscow. It was a period of glasnost and Perestroika, So the archive was open to me. Unlike previous experiences where they were closed, in the post-Soviet period or in the late Soviet period, things changed. I spent two months working in the archive, on Walensky and discovered that he was more interesting and fascinating than I ever thought. He was always a kind of a secondary figure. He was not a novelist or a poet, a critic, a journalist, an editor, a philosopher. It turns out that he is one of the most erudite figures of Russian culture of the early 20th, late 19th centuries. The archive, if I spent two years, I would never have exhausted its contents. But when I got out of Moscow, I spent the next eight months in England. I had a year sabbatical. And I said, before I wrote this book that I thought I would write on the journal, let me write an article in English about Walensky. Because I realized that even I as a specialist had known so little about him. Well, as it turns out, as I saw in the archive, for the last roughly 15 years of his life, he was an extraordinarily prolific ballet critic. i never heard of that, I never knew about it. And so what I did was to write an article introducing readers of English to this man's life and his work. I published it in a very nice, although, not very large in terms of circulation journal. And two years later, when it came out, I got a letter from the editor of a journal in England called Dance Research. And he said, my colleagues and I have read your article, the last three pages of which were dedicated to Walensky's career as a dance critic. He said, we are excited is not even the word. We have wanted to know about Walensky. We've heard about him. We heard the Russians will shortly republish his major work on dance, published in 1925, never reissued. Could you work with us? Could you write something? Would you like to write an article on this book? And I thought about it. And I figured, no, I don't know enough about dance. It's a very complicated book. On the other hand, I was always taught, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. And I wrote back and I said, you know, I can't write a whole article on the book. I don't have the background. What I can do is translate some of Walensky's critical articles on dance, which were available through microfiche or microfilm. Mind you, this is 19... 91, we're not in the real computer age. And I'll translate, I'll translate a few excerpts from the book and I'll write a cover article. Yes, absolutely, we'll grab it because it's free. And I said, you know, I have tenure. What are they gonna do? They're not gonna fire me for writing about dance about which I know so little. I wrote the article and I sent it off. Uh, It was published. That is, I wrote the translations, the articles, the people in London included some wonderful photographs of some of the dancers Valinsky writes about in the large collection at the British Museum, they have a large dance collection. The magazine, the journal came out, it's a very highly regarded journal, but it's for dance people. And I thought that was the end of it, I really did. But this is the world of research, scholarship, publishing. Shortly after it came out, I get a letter from the very venerable dance critic retired of The New Yorker, Arlene Croce, whose writings I knew just because I read The New Yorker. And it was a short note. Dear Professor Benowitz, I just finished reading your piece. I have two questions. First, for a book that I am writing on George Sheen. Balanchine was younger than Valinsky. They knew each other briefly in Petersburg. There was no love lost between the two of them. And Valinsky stayed in Russia, he never left. Balanchine left in 24, but for a few years, they knew each other. And so she wanted to know whether she could use one of the translations that I rendered into English for her book on Balanchine. The second question was much more interesting. Do you have, could you tell me whether you have any intention of doing more work on Walensky? Well, so I wrote back and I said, of course, use what you can. And as far as the second question, might I get in touch with you? Could we talk? Because I've been thinking about this. Mind you, this is totally new territory for me. I'm coming in, it's like practicing without a license. In medicine, you'd be locked up. What do I know? So I called, I couldn't believe it. A literature scholar, I, I like to dance, but I'm not on the league of Arlene Croce. I called her. She was very, very encouraging, very lovely. And I asked her, I said, why should I write a book? Why should I do more on Valinsky? I don't know why, can you, oh, she said, I'll tell you right now why. First of all, this is a quote. First of all, uh, I don't agree with much of what he says in his criticism, but that's not the point. I have never seen ballet criticism written in this kind of a language. This is not the language of dance criticism. And she went on to say something like 99% of people who write dance criticism are from the world of dance. That's their home. Walensky had no training in dance. He was a philosopher. He was a late 19th century Nietzschean, German, romantic. And she said, that's the language that he's writing in. It's fascinating to see dance, let alone it's a teleology of dance, it's a philosophy. That's number one. Number two, the other reason why I would love to see more, that is a book is, you know, and I knew this, she said, you know, this is again, 1994, roughly. She said, you know, what's very common now in the dance world are reconstructions of old ballets. And there's a woman, actually, I knew her, I met her before I ever spoke to Arlene Croce in England, who is doing a lot of reconstruction of the Stravinsky Ballets, and, you know, there's no video, so we only have the criticism, we have the drawings and, and photographs. She said, Valinsky has such an acute visual memory. He, he goes to these performances, he runs home to his typewriter, and he recreates so vividly movement, color, costume that we just don't know about. We just don't have it. That's fascinating. And thirdly, she said, and this was certainly self-serving, God bless her. She said, you know, I have studied Balanchine for so many years. We know so much about him, except his early period when he was living as a young man in Petersburg. And Valinsky recreates the world of Russian ballet. So, as a matter of fact, Valinsky wrote an article where he talks about the young Balanchine performing in The Nutcracker. So actually, she said, I think people who really are interested in Balanchine, now you're talking big time, would really benefit from a book of articles, translations, whatever. Well, she got me very excited. And so I did it. Now, Agreeing to do it is one thing. Doing it is another thing. One of the things that I didn't uh, plan on, I didn't foresee, luckily, because if I had, I would never have gotten into this. Two things. First of all, it has to do with the Russian language and the difficulties of translating, namely ballet criticism, into Russian. Why? It just so happens that in Russian, the word for foot and leg is the same, naga. That's right. The word for arm and hand is the same word, ruka. If you don't know the context, you do not know whether to translate moving her hand or moving her arm, right? That's number one. You go crazy. Another thing is it's just a peculiarity of the Russian language. To enter and to exit and it comes to stage is the same verb, but the preposition which follows the verb means either, on, it means to go either onto or out of. Now, if you have the preposition, you know what he's talking about. She went onto the stage or she exited, but very often, Valinsky leaves the preposition out. You don't need it if you know the context, if you know the ballet. Well, Stanley Rabinowitz did not know these ballets that well. And I had to deal with it. The next thing, of course, and was because I didn't know the ballets. It was not just these words that were baffling. There were some other issues as well. So I had a colleague who, and this is one of the joys of the project, I'd love to do a book about this. I won't. Suddenly, every third woman I met, particularly younger women in their 30s, 20s, danced when they were young. I had a colleague, she was my colleague for over 10 years. I never heard of her interest in, I never heard that. I happened to speak to her about this. I said, gee, what am I to do? Oh, she said, well, of course, I remember dancing this in those days, they had these laser discs. Get yourself the laser disc of this ballet, watch it, and obviously, and then you'll know what he's talking about. So the point is, I went into this very naively, the best way to go. And I really put in much more than I bargained for. The second installment was another submission to this journal, Dance Research, with more translations and another cover article, and more praise. And then I figured, you know, I'm not going to do any more short articles. This will be a book. And because I thought I had so little at stake, I figured it's not my field. I have tenure. I'm kind of enjoying it. Who cares? Well, 10 years later, I cared an awful lot. I finished it, and it uh, eventually saw the light of day. How it saw the light of day, uh, maybe as a question, I'd be happy to answer. But it may get us very far afield. But <laughs> I don't know what to say. Uh, I could. You know, anyway, are you interested in more of this publication history and my journey as a writer of Balinsky and dance criticism? And then we'll get up to the very specific.
1: Absolutely, because I think the first book, Ballet's Magic Kingdom, yeah. and that field that right. goes into this one. So yeah, please.
0: Uh, well, I'm going to try not to name names. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure how uh, appropriate it is, so I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, I did all this translation. And, you know, when I spoke to Ms. Croce 10 years earlier, she was so excited. She said, you know, if you want, I and another ballet writer, we will recommend you for a Guggenheim. If you're interested, this is really good stuff. Well, I wouldn't go near it. I figured, me? A Google? No. And she started telling me, gee, you know, you could publish it here, you could publish it there. She listed a couple of names. Now, 10 years later, I had a complete manuscript without an introduction. I was going on leave, and I was going to, I mean, I had the introduction written in my mind. And I wrote to a woman who was one of the readers who identified herself for the articles that I submitted to Dance Research. She told the editor, and this is unusual, that obviously she loved it, go publish it, but there were a few things that clearly Professor Rabinowitz as an untrained dance critic could use a little help on. And of course I took her advice, but if he has any other questions, please, here's my name, here's my number. Well, I didn't. But 10 years later, I figured I'm calling her. So I got in touch, of course she remembered me. And I said, look, I'm like a babe in the woods. I've got this manuscript. I don't yet have an introduction. It's coming. And Arlene Croce gave me these names. Oh no, she said, "Mm, you'll give it to me. I'm editor of a series of dance writings. I'd like to see it. I sent it to her. I'm not sure with, I think without the introduction. Four months later, now the theme of this story is good news versus bad news. Four months later, I hear from her good news and bad news. The good news is that the outside reader that she gave the book to loved it. And she said, I've got the reader's report. The inside readers from the press did not, for the most Ridiculous of reasons, they said, Velinsky too often used contractions, isn't, doesn't, come on. And secondly, they didn't like him. Well, that's true. He was a very passive aggressive man. I'll get into this a little later. And she said to me, you know, I don't wanna fight that fight. I really don't wanna fight the battle. So that's the bad news. However, there's more good news. One of the names that Arlene Croce gave you 10 years ago, or one of the places to send it, I know the editor of the series. I will write, and then I think you'll be asked to send the manuscript. I think, you know, I'm relaxed about this. Okay, I have teaching, I have a life. Sure enough, this guy writes to me. Well, I hear you have this, and now you have an introduction. I'd love to see it. I sent it. He asked me for suggestions about readers. He said, I'll find the reader. Do you have anyone? And we went right through it. And he said, you know, by the end of the summer, this was now May. He said, I should have an answer. I like this. He said, as a matter of fact, I think I would publish it in two volumes. Okay. I sent him the stuff. I get the first reader's report. Ecstatic. Ecstatic. And now I'm waiting for the second report and it's late August and I got to think about teaching and I get an email subject, good news, bad news. Uh, The bad news, the second reader has not finished reading. I've tried to get it out of her. Uh, She likes it, but she's not finished. Uh, I would go further on it, but the bad news and the good news is also is that. The press that he was working at just discontinued their series in performing arts. This is the name of the game. Few people are doing performing arts. He said, so they now, I've lost my job. They're not in the picture. However, the good news about that is that I think I'm going to get another job. He's been around the block. And I'd like to take this manuscript with me. Fine. I said, I'm not going anywhere. And I, so I let him do it. In October, late October of that year, I get an email from him, good news, bad news. Uh, The good news, I got a job, landed on my feet at this new press. The bad news is that they do not publish anything on modern dance. The only thing they've published on dance is Lakota Indian Sioux dancing, uh, Native American dance, not modern dance. So he said, you know, I got to let it go. And so there we were. And I was fit to be tied. I called one of the readers of the manuscript, whom I know. He said, look, I heard what you're going through. And he gave me the name of someone. I, I just don't want to get And he said, why did not you get in touch with this person? Well, the next thing I know, I'm going to go all the way, skip. The manuscript landed at Yale. I didn't even know it was there. I sent the manuscript to this person who liked it. He said, I'm going to try to find possibilities. And months later, I get a letter from Yale agreeing to publish the manuscript with a few cosmetic changes. Well, so I published it with Yale. And then uh, this is, again, so much, maybe this is inappropriate for this medium, but so much of publishing is, serendipitous, is luck. I mean, this is, if any young scholars, I mean, I can't tell you how many times in my life I've wanted to throw in the towel, either because critics or readers have been vicious and ungenerous, or possible publishers, whether they're journals or presses, have sat on things for the longest time uh, and really not behaved in a way that I would have uh, approved of, and here I am in the world of dance, and I don't know anybody. That's why I had to turn to these people. I don't know who publishes dance, I don't know. Finally, Yale took it. They loved it, and again, as luck would have it, of course, I had no knowledge, I had no input. The book came out in November of 2008. Uh, at the beginning of the third week, or the end of the third week of January, I got a call from the editor saying, Stanley, sit down. Our marketing department just heard that the New York Times will review your book. And by the way, it will be in the Sunday Times book review. And by the way, it'll be the first page. Well, I have to tell you, this was totally unexpected. And sure enough, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, again, this is like a fantasy world. I didn't know if we be published. This one didn't like contractions. They hated Walensky. I was so sick of seeing leg and foot and who cares what she's shaking. Get me out of here. But it came out and I was in Cambridge at the time. And I was told that the New York Times book review, at least in Cambridge, is available as early as Wednesday. It's a big city. So I went into one of the local bookstores and there was the book review. And there were about eight Eight, uh, you know, book reviews, uh, $2 each. I took all eight, and the woman who actually knew me, I mean, I, she said, gee, she said, uh, eight of them were sold out, and the review was on the first page. So I said, to, I turned to her, I said, you see this review? I said, that's me. That, oh, she said, how wonderful. You have to give a talk at the store. Anyway, once you're, you're reviewed in the New York Times, it's, it's, a, it's a whole other world. And one of the joys of this project has been, particularly at the later stages of my career, I was not just starting at, how much it opened to me, how many worlds that I was unaware of, the world of dance, the world of performing arts. Actually, most of the people I have kept in touch with to this day uh, have been dancers who have either written me or whom I've met saying, we appreciate this book more than you can ever know. Because what I learned through Walensky, this is why Walensky was so popular in his own day. Yes, everyone hated him. The dancers themselves had every right, these women, to be angry with him because on the pages of his criticism, he would praise you with one hand and destroy you with another in the name of honesty. But what they loved him for and valued him for, they'd never seen anything like it, was the seriousness with which he took their profession. They were not courtesans, they were not acrobats, they were not second-class citizens, they were powerful women who had, dare I say, the guts to have a career, what we call now agency. He was attracted to strong women, he, what should I say, promoted women? And sure enough, 70 years later, when some of these dancers have read the book, they've come up to me, they've written to me, and say, my God, thank you. Why? Because you see, whenever he writes about dance, hate the people, love the performance, that's not the issue. He takes it. For him, dance was the the pinnacle of human artistic expression. Now, for me, who leads a fairly, you know, not an interesting life, but it's not that I go to dance performance all the time. I like other forms. To be introduced to this world where people work so hard. Now, again, it's a cliche. And there were all these ballet movies, you know, Black Swan, all right, they may be a little overdone, but I've enjoyed it. It was kind of an open sesame. And so on the basis of that um, review, and there were many others, uh, people loved it. uh, And so the question is where to go for it. Every time I've done something on this project, it was the final chapter. No more, I just pronounced it dead on a, that's it, it's over. Well, while I was doing this book on uh, the first one, Ballet's Magic Kingdom, I already, you know, again, I. I figured, gee, you know, there are some more questions here. There are some more issues that are interesting. And since the book was so well received, I figured, you know, there's an audience for it. There's a constituency for it. And I got excited. So one of the things I noticed when I worked on the first book, I mean, obviously it, you don't have to be an expert to notice it, is this is what ties Walensky to Balanchine. Balanchine said, ballet is woman. Well, with all due respect, Valinsky said it much earlier than he did. Valinsky was attracted by, fascinated by uh, women dancers. And I noticed that when I did the first book, I had so much material to choose from. And then when I sent it to the publisher, they wanted me to cut. I don't think they thought it would do this well. They figured, eh, you know, who's Valinsky? So I cut. And then I realized there were some issues that Walensky deals with that weren't fully treated. And I wanted to do more, particularly his interest in women. Now, you know, this in the 21st century may sound, well, so what? For his time, he was really remarkable. He was never threatened by women professionals. On the contrary, he not only was attracted to them, he gravitated to them. He supported them. Sometimes he did so with a kind of, again, patriarchal attitude, but they got his attention and they appreciated it. And I figured, you know, there are a lot of articles that I did not translate, which have less to do about performance, choreography, sets, scenery, and obviously the performers, and more to do with the dancers as women, as women personalities. Again, who at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, women now are becoming, for the first time in Russia, not only the handmaidens but to art, to the men, but they're becoming active participants. If you know Chekhov's writing with Ibsen, women now are empowered. And Walensky caught to that early. And I figured, gee, I want to investigate this. Let's see where it leads me. Then the other question that always interested me was how did this man at the age more or less of 50, with no training in dance, with no background in dance, how did he discover, where did he come to dance from? Where where does, it's like me, where in the hell did I come from at the age of 49? We have very similar, I must say, Uh, I can go into that. It's how you become the person you write about Uh, Where did he come, well, technically, I mean, I knew what happened, is it turns out, again, this is why scholarship, even if it doesn't get published, although it's nice to have it published and recognized, leads you to these, I figured you, let me see what else he wrote about women before. It's interesting, when he started writing ballet criticism in 1911, he stopped writing about women in other spheres, so I did my research, I, you know, I know my way around, and I noticed that all through his life, Walensky was not only connected to women, engaged by women, dead and alive, real and fictional, but he wrote about them and many of them he supported. So I collected as many pieces as I thought I could find. I mean, who knows, I didn't go back to the archive and realized that uh, indeed, he wrote some fascinating vignettes about the Russian women he knew uh, as a young man, including Ida Rubinstein, uh, Andreas Zalame, who was a feminist icon. No one knew. The president of Amherst College wrote a book on Andreas Zalame. No one knew. No, one, It was never written about that she started off with Walensky. She was from Petersburg, from a Russian-German family. And he writes, I translated, how he got to know her. And they wrote a story together, which he published in his journal. Then he wrote this extraordinary piece. If anybody wants to read anything in this book, and then came dance. It's the article on the Mona Lisa. It's, uh, 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 to me, this was a, uh, I'll tell you why it was a revelation. It pointed out what Walensky was at his most basic. He was a revisionist. He loved to be a trailblazer, except in his case that the trail that he followed led backward rather than forward. He was terrific, he was an iconoclast. This is no good, that's no good. And so at the turn of the 20th century, when as Nietzsche said, this is a reevaluation of values, when everything was up for granted, Walensky was right, yes, throw the whole thing down. But what he wanted to go back to was a very conservative, very classical, very uh, idiosyncratic world of his mind. Classical purity, classical beauty. He thought ballet started in ancient Greece. Unlike Balanchine, who also was an iconoclast, but his iconoclasm led him to the future, led him to something new and different. What I realized about Valinsky. Uh, particularly in the writings about women and the one on the Mona Lisa. He was so educated. As a matter of fact, he was too educated. He was, he was uh, daunting. He, he knew so much and uh, that limited him as well. He could be pigheaded. It was never good enough because he always thought he knew more and he alienated a lot of people. Uh, but with the Mona Lisa piece, which was part of a book that I almost translated, you know, after Yale had the success with this ballet book, they asked me if I wanted to do another book for them because Walensky now is hot. I thought about translating the one on, it's called Leonardo da Vinci. And I figured, Stanley, keep away. You've already invaded the field of dance. I couldn't draw a straight line if you held my hand. Please stay away from art, uh, uh, you know, you have to have, have you no shame. No shame. That book was a sensation. He was made an honorary citizen of Milan. I visited the library in Milan. Uh, there's a whole room uh, dedicated to Walensky. He left that library when he went there to do research on Leonardo, who lived in Milan for a while. He left his books there, and they have uh, all of his library. Well, I came there. It must have been, I don't know, 98, 99. They couldn't, and I speak Italian, and they loved me. Oh, signore professore, I wanted to see the books. I don't think anyone had been there for 70 years. Who knew Volinsky was all in Russian? It, but the article is fascinating. He really overturns all of our preconceptions about the Renaissance and about Leonardo da Vinci. Now, I show this to a colleague in the fine arts. She and her husband are both, they both do Renaissance Dutch art. And she said, Stanley, listen, this guy is so wrong about certain things. He's just wrong. Subsequent scholarship has discovered things that he couldn't have known about. But they said about this article, what Arlene Croce said about her experience reading his ballet articles. I can't agree with everything, but there's nothing like it. And so for me, exploring Walensky's writings about women outside of ballet was a pleasure. And what I found, at least that was my theory, I think it's true, is that he wrote about women in the arts, either in pictures or in literature, or women who literally practiced art as writers, as actresses like Stein poets like Zina Davis. That mindset led him, I believe, to the women on stage because he was looking for, let's call it a religion. He was looking for an art, an expression, an expressive form, preferably with women in it, which would lead him, this is a very, you know, again, Neoplatonism, late 19th, early 20th century, symbolist notion of the transcendent. And that's what he found women in ballet to represent. These are the perfect, but this is why he did not like Isadora Duncan. who, oh, by the way, he wrote now again. You read it and he said, oh, come on, come on. Give the woman a break. Be polite. At first he loved her. But then, no, and by the way, in the second book, And Then Came Dance, I, of course, I'm reading now with my whole new life. There's a scholar named Ann Daly. I wouldn't know about her work, but now I'm studying it. She wrote a marvelous book called Done Into Dance on Isadora Duncan. It's, I loved it. And to tell you the truth, not to take anything away from her at all, I don't know when, in 1912 or 1911, whenever Walensky wrote the article that I included in this volume, Valinsky basically said the same thing. Of course, she says it in 300 pages that if you're interested in dance, I'm, I'm, I'm mauling it. I'm not only, if you're interested in dance and dancers and women on stage for the moment, their personalities, their biographies, uh, Isadora Duncan is your, is your dancer. It's all about her. She's an actress. She's a performer. But if you are interested in dance as an art form that moves you from the literal to the figurative or to the mythic, from the historical to the mythic, then she's not your dancer. She's much too interested in her own expressive personal talent. And what Walensky was looking for, now he wrote about her as the anti-dancer. But all the other ballerinas, and of course particularly too Pavlova and Spesif, if I'll get onto that. He was searching in them, and of course he could never quite find. No one finds utopia. Then it's no longer utopia. But he came pretty close in seeing these extraordinarily talented, shapely, beautiful women. Not necessarily beautiful in their facial qual, but in their body, in their movements, in their coordination. This, for him, was what he was looking for, dance as the ultimate expression of artistic endeavor. And women, by the way, he was slightly criticized uh, for excluding men. Now, you read his criticism. And of course, occasionally, he'll mention a partner. Nijinsky is there. A few others, Samuel Andrianov. But it's all about women. And that's what his quest was all about. So I decided to translate these pre-ballet articles about women and then follow it, part one, in this new book, with articles that I never quite captured in my selection in the first book. More about women. And I, and I include many, many more women in the second volume. And that's how I got to where I was with this book. Now, uh, this um, was a little uh, also every endeavor in the world of publishing, particularly nowadays in academic publishing, is an experience. Uh, I thought that Yale would want a second volume. uh, And they sat on this manuscript. And then they decided that's their prerogative. They are not doing much in dance nowadays much more in art books and large books. Okay, so where to go? Well, I knew someone who had published with Oxford. They were wonderful. And so they were happy to do this volume. Of course, uh, I don't know if I could do this again, because the world of publishing now is all technologically uh, based. I'm not used to that. For instance, uh, you know, pictures, you have to have a certain dots per inch. Don't ask what I had to go through with these photographs. You can go out of your mind. And publishers now expect authors to do all the work. I have to say this. Then, uh, of course, Oxford is a, you know, it's it's, it's a global, it's international company. It so happens they, at least in my case, they do their, all their production, the editing and the printing in India. Now, these are British educated people. I'm not, believe me, criticizing their competence, but when they're several time zones away and they don't want you to call them. They want it all online. Well, it's track changes and all, oh, give me a break. I can't deal with this. So, but finally it was a labor of love. It came out. uh, I love the photos, the pictures. I could give you an article on each one. And here again, and I'm gonna stop. uh, Ultimately the joy of this project Well, it's manifold, of course. The joy has been to have the pleasure, maybe even privilege, of getting to know people, very often by mail, never met them, in the world of dance, who are so engaged, so involved, so cooperative. Uh, For the photos, I had a right to various people I never met these people. Who the hell am I? All right, they knew the first book. Who is Stanley Rabin? We we don't know who he is. You need a photo, of course. We'll even do it for you. But they were so excited to 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 have their their love of dance discovered and perpetuated. This gave me I can't tell you just great great pleasure. The other thing is I said before I. I don't know what I am. Am I a writer? Maybe I am. When I'm writing, I write, but then I do something else. There really is, particularly when you're doing something that is current. My research has brought me to the 19th century, so they're all dead. But to write about something as current as dance and performance, and then to have access to some of these people who are experiencing your work on the page, is something, you know, it, it? It you can touch it. It's not like you're writing something or you're working on an assembly line, you do your little project and you never see the end of it. You do your little thing. With most research, that's what happens. You get a few readers they were in the dance. I'm going to give you one anecdote. And then, I, you know, I do go on. When the first volume came out, of course, I, I did, you know, the, the New York Times review. Okay. And of course, it's all email. Fine. One day, was in late March or early April, two months after the review came out, I get a uh, letter, snail mail. I get very little snail mail. It was an elderly person's handwriting. You can usually tell that. And the return address, full disclosure, uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I, I tell you the truth, I don't want, I thought this could be a Ku Klux Klan. They see this Jewish guy. We're going to burn it. A- Hattiesburg, Mississippi. What the hell is going on? I open it up. And I have to tell you, I have it. I should laminate it and frame it and take it to the coffin. It is one of the most lovely documents. I didn't think to bring it. Dear Professor Benowitz, he writes me. He has, he tells me who he is. He's, well, I spoke to him. He's dead now. He was in his mid or late 80s. 13 or 14 years ago. I mean, conceivably could be a lot. He was one of these young guys who went to Paris in the 1930s, many expatriates, and he danced there. He didn't say whom he studied with or where he danced, but in the 30s, in another life, when he was a young man, he studied dance. Fine. Ever since then, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's more or less a quote, I have been looking for Uh, the kind of mindset which I've just found in your book. This book will now be, capital B, my Bible. I have been looking for the, thank you so much. I have to tell you, I was moved. And I had to speak to him, of course. Lovely person. Again, what do I know? Hattiesburg, 1930s, uh, Here is a person who gave his early years, I don't know what he does, I did not go into detail, to dance, obviously he never became a professional. I mean, I don't know what he did, but he certainly wasn't on the big stage. And it was part of his youth and part of his idealism and part of his dedication to an art form which only fanatics can deal with. If you're not a fanatic, you you shouldn't be in dance. I learned that. You have to be a fanatic, Uh, what they go through. And Valinsky brings this out very, very well. And I think he was one of them. And now at the end of his life, 60 years later, from the 30s until, I don't know, 2010, 70 years, he's found this book. He has found this man. I I, I tell you something, uh, on a perfectly human level, I was deeply moved that that this writing could have such an impact, so that is one of the, maybe the only serious pleasure I've gotten out of the project. There have been many, many headaches, many setbacks, uh, but I've actually learned a tremendous uh, amount. Um, This was a man who gave his, Walensky to a fault, gave his entire life to art. He was brilliant, but he was always an outsider He was an outlier in many, many ways, Uh, born in the Jewish provinces with a clear Yiddish or Jewish accent in Russian, goes of all places to the capital. Okay, you wanna make your career, go to New York, go to a big city, went to Petersburg. As a philosopher, as he went to the university, he studied law, but he did not become a lawyer because in order to become a lawyer, To practice law, you had to convert. And although he was not a practicing Jew, he was devoted to the culture and the background, the people of the book. His father was a book salesman. So he didn't convert. He flirted with Christianity, but never quite took the step. And he comes to this capital, and he's not a pleasant man. You could argue maybe he was, you know, the fifth wheel or the, What do they say? The greasy wheel gets the attention. He was brilliant, but in an abrasive, off putting way. And by the time he finished editing this journal in 1898, he was more or less driven out of Russian culture. (coughs) They didn't like him. (coughs) He was a threat to the powers that be, but he was the wandering Jew. He, He lectured, he did this, he was lost. And he found himself in ballet. He did other things as well. He had a profession, he had a career. But when he died, they went into his apartment and it was, you may as well have been going to a cell of a monk because he was very poor. He had his books and he had pictures of the great ballerinas. He led a very Spartan, very ascetic life, but it was all devoted to culture, to art. And to tell you the truth, even after he died, if it was noticed at all, 90 plus percent of the people wrote him off. They were condescending. uh, Who is this outsider, this shtetl Jew? They didn't say it, but that's what they meant. Because he was an outsider, he provides a window into this period that is very unique. First of all, he was involved again in theater, He was involved in art, he wrote criticism, philosophy, he edited a journal, and he was a ballet critic. Not bad. So when you read his writing, most of which has not been published, let alone translated, you really, it's like an open sesame, my God. Yet, he died alone. He had a daughter whom he was estranged from. Eventually she came to see him in the hospital. He died of a heart condition. I mean, he died of a broken heart. Who knows? He never agreed with the revolution, but he never outwardly opposed it. He did not leave the Soviet Union. He could have left. He stayed. He died in Leningrad in 1926. But after he died, he was totally a persona non grata. And again, I don't want to stereotype or generalize, but he lived what he wrote about. There was no separation between the scholar-thinker and the person. For whatever reason, psychologically, I'm sure you could do a number, he was attracted to what ultimately he couldn't have. And that were these beautiful Slavic women, particularly dancers, their bodies, their talent. And it was really sad because the love of his life, of because his favorite dancer was Anna Pavlova. Why wouldn't she be? Although he saw her only a few times. You know, one of the things that's interesting is most of the famous dancers that we're familiar with, Karsavina, Nizhinsky, Pavlova, they left Petersburg to go to Paris. This is why Velinsky hated Diaghilev. You know, some years ago, there was the 100th anniversary of the Ballet Russe. And I hate, you know, I'm a little like Walensky. I I don't want to sound, I don't know what, um, holier than thou. But uh, we have a tendency to hero worship. And Diaghilev is one of them. Oh, my God, what he did. Well, actually, uh, everyone has another side. And Walensky, to say the least, did not like Diaghilev. He wrote, I have an article that never appeared somewhere else about Diaghilev called The Yellow Devil of Dance. He hated him. And one of the reasons he hated him was because he stole these fabulous dancers, brought them to Paris, where, of course, uh, they danced before the golden calf. Big money, lots of fame. And here, Petersburg is left almost without them. Some of them came back for a while. Pavlova was one. He adored Pavlova. But even with Pavlova, she was the standard. She was the gold standard. Even with her, he finds moments when he can be nasty in print. Well, she left, and then his great love, the saddest love, this is Cyrano de Bergerac, was specific. Uh, Like many of the women, I can't generalize, but some of these women uh, either had no fathers or weak fathers or there's something, I can't, I'm not a psychologist, and the last thing I'm, but what I noticed is that these fabulously talented women that you don't like to say this because they were looking for strong men because men were in charge. And I have to say, as strong as Walensky was, as patriarchal as he was, I would not reduce this to, oh, they needed a man in their life. This was someone, it was like Pygmalion. He adored what they did. He adored it. How could they not feel validated by this brilliant man? And when it came to Spasiftova, he really crossed the line. He fell in love with her madly and she rejected him. Why not? She was younger, she was very different. Uh, she probably figured, my God, living with him a couple of days, you go out of your mind. But she, she adored what he did. I have a letter that, not a letter, a speech that she gave in the introduction to my latest volume, which is, I mean, you can see why Balanchine had some problems with Walensky because Balanchine wanted to be loved by all these women. Well, frankly, George, uh, some of these women actually loved Valinsky maybe more than you, or as much as you. I mean, it was reported that Balanchine loved Spesifzeva. But when you read what Spesifzeva says about Valinsky, no one could match that. And he was terribly, terribly rejected. He wanted to marry her. He wanted to marry Ida Rubinstein, another strong woman who was really nuts, uh, he was willing to do it, and she rejected him. Uh, I like the idea, the notion, again, I, I don't do it. Maybe it shouldn't be done by these powerful, strong women being attracted to the skinny. He was like, he's Woody Allen, but he's brilliant. And they were fascinated, good for them, by his, certainly not by his looks, by his mind, by what he allowed them to think about themselves. Can you imagine that? I mean, again, we know dance was not, you know, some people are in mean, rich, fortune, Jewish. When her family found out that she wanted to go into the theater, they, they moved her out, of, they, they threw her out. Only courtesans, the actresses? It's untenable, but not for Walensky. Walensky treated these women <coughs> as equals. As a matter of fact, they were superior. So when you read that the revolution came, the world's ballet was threatened. <clears throat> <clears throat> These artists had left. Volinsky never saw the ballet roots. He never left Russia. After 1913, he heard reports. He liked Fokin, but then Fokin was a traitor. He never liked uh, Box. No, I'm, I'm sorry, Diaghilev. Boxed he liked, Benoit he liked. But his people left him. And the final blow, it was one of several, was when Spisifzva left, and she went over to Diaghilev. He lost his country. He lost Russia. He lost classical culture. He lost, as he knew it, ballet, as he wanted it to be. And he lost his Vestal Virgin, his Spisifzva, who was everything to him. So he died broken, but of course, He was never so broken as not to be involved in a project. His last work, which still has not been published, which I saw but could not reproduce, I think it's 500 pages, on Rembrandt. On Rembrandt, that was his last. He went back toward the end of his life. This happens. As I may have said, he was born Jewish. It was an iconoclastic family. Uh, They certainly must have known the rituals, but they didn't go to synagogue. I don't think they were practicing. He flirted with Christianity. But at the end, one of his great heroes in his early days, about whom he wrote, was Spinoza. And at the end of his life, this, of course, happens. I know it now. I'm coming to the end of mine. (laughs) You go back, back, back to the future. Who knows? Suddenly, I'm going back. I thought, I'm, I'm done with that. No, you're not. He went back to Leiden to the Netherlands, the Jewish world of Spinoza. And he wrote what I can only imagine is a magisterial work on Rembrandt. I've seen excerpts from it. Now, again, I wouldn't presume to judge. I'm not an art critic. Uh, Some of the stuff may be crazy, but the little that I saw once again, he always makes you think. He forces you to ask the question, what am I engaged in? What are we talking about here? Uh, and he worked on this book. He finished it. Uh, I don't know why it hasn't come out. I just don't know. Of course, the Russians are known for their textology. They give you uh, all kinds of editions, which are so they might still be working on it. But uh, it will come out. It will come out. But that was his last work. And then basically he closed his doors and he didn't go out very much. And eventually he passed away. Uh, I think very defeated, certainly unappreciated and unloved. Part of it was his own problem. He, 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 he um, alienated people. But I found him to be, as you may be able to see, I haven't worked on this for years, uh, I don't think much as I would love to go on with this. I, I don't want to leave what has been so pleasant and so stimulating. I did have some ideas uh, about going on and dance of the period. Uh, I'm too old now, and I don't think I'm intellectually not up for it. I mean, I, but I'd have to go to Russia And I don't have the energy to spend the time I think you need. Uh, There were two things that interested me. They might even be related. Uh, One of them was the number of ballet schools that exist. You know, Valensky opened his own school in in Petersburg, Petrograd. There were several schools uh, run by dancers in the post revolutionary period up until, I don't know when, some of them even left. Of course, Vaganova, she went on forever. The school was named after her. But I mean smaller schools. I would have loved to do something on that. The other thing that I don't know, again, if there's even a a serious uh, discipline in this, but one of the things, again, what do I know? I come out of this, i really without a license. Uh, One of the things I noticed, as I said before, when you do dance and suddenly i'm going to jacob's pillow and i go to the america i mean god knows i met somebody once at uh, the american ballet in, in new york and and he saw me with two fairly you know, one on one on the other with another he wrote back he said stanley who would have ever believed look who you're hanging out with well those days are over but uh one of the things that interested me uh was the phenomenon, I think it's a phenomenon, of the ballet mother. It may not only be the mother, it's usually the mother, it could be the father. In uh, Lydia Ivanova's case, this great dancer who mysteriously died in 1924, she was drowned. She was supposed to leave Russia with Balanchine. She was one of his partners, he adored her. She drowned and they, two weeks later, the rest of these guys left for Germany and they never came back to Russia. She had a father, who was the equivalent of what I want to call the ballet mother? Uh, I would love to, I don't know how I would quite do it, but you know, you start and you never know where it's gonna take. I'd love to study the phenomenon of where, you know, you ask, how did I get involved in Valinsky? And how did Valinsky get involved in ballet? Well, another question is: how did these young girls literally get involved in dance? I mean, it's obviously you know what has to happen, and they're invited to the Capitol, and then they get all their expenses. But is there such a thing, such a phenomenon as, let's call it the ballet, like the soccer mom. To what extent are they involved? What role do they play? What is their role? I just thought that if I went on, uh, I might do something else. Of course, there's always, it's, you can go on for another five years. Uh, Valinsky's criticism is so copious. There's, there's more to do, but I'm done, I'm done. I never thought I would do the second project, quit while you're ahead, I don't have the time, I don't know if there's anything left, but uh, it's a it's a remarkable, I mean, I know, I should know better than that, it's a remarkable period. What I loved about it was as much as I thought I was an expert in Russian, Russian culture and certainly literature, uh, I think I didn't know nearly as much as, wow, there is to know about theater. Uh, not only Russian theater, you can read anything you like about theater, but I mean the inside world of theater. The personalities, the goals, the hopes, the uh, weird and extraordinary combination between dreaming and fantasy on the one hand and just hard back-breaking work on the other. And what motivates these people? What keeps them going? Uh, particularly in Russia at that time, is something that I really treasure. Uh, you know, there are little facts which one can look at as little or much bigger. And it's always dangerous to put too much emphasis on either direction. But you know, Walensky was in some ways, not in always, responsible for the continuation of the great Marinsky Theater, which used to be called the Kirov. Now it's gone back to the original, you know, In one of the articles that I published, uh, uh, translated, you know, uh, in the early 20s, by the early 20s after the civil war in Russia was devastated, it was quite clear that ballet's days were numbered. This was a regime that that was in power. The Reds won, the Bolsheviks won. Ballet was something they wouldn't go near with a 10-foot pole, elitist, bourgeois, uh, precious, certainly had nothing to do with the working class and nothing to do with understanding their most immediate goals. There was famine, there was disease. And Walensky played a role in helping to save that theater. And to some extent, maybe even part of the classical tradition in ballet. Uh, And so you learn these things as you go on and uh, that again has—I don't know whether it's been thoroughly researched—but uh, uh, the way in which the, the nitty-gritty of how ballet, believe it or not, Russian ballet almost, you know, fell apart. It was almost wiped off. The you know the government, of course, eventually supported it, kept the theater going, supported the schools. That was not a a, a given, that was not a given. And so, uh, you know, there's so much more you can do and people I think are doing it with the history of theater and the history of dance. Um, So it's been quite a journey. Uh, We'll see. Now, if you, I haven't let you ask one question. (laughs) (laughs) It is just a dramatic monologue and an hour and
1: whatever It's absolutely perfect. No, you, you really answered more than, than I had even planned to ask. I was just thinking, um, as you said, it wasn't a given that ballet would continue once that the Soviet was established. And I'm sure you all remember, um, as Yeltsin is going into, into Moscow and we see the Soviet Union collapsing, it was ballet that was on TV 24 hours a day. You bet. For two or three days. So I thought that was a really interesting thing that you said, and then to know how it, it ends. Um, as a well, you know, another,
0: again, these are almost irresponsible because they're fantastic and they have no grounds in reality. They're just hypothetical. But one of the things, you know, I lived in Leningrad before I became a professor. I was there for six months. One of the things I noticed and noticed today, and it's interesting and curious, about culture. What are certain cultures interested in? What do they value? What do they specialize in? You go to the Soviet Union, as I did, and you saw at least three things. And I, I just wonder, and I think they're related, and the question is why. They're fan- I learned they're fanatic about three things in no particular order. Chess, hockey, and ballet. <gasps> Uh, hold on, my, can I go? My door, doorbell is ringing.
1: Yes, I'm going to pause it. Um, okay. okay um, could you please continue your, your, your thoughts well, about that? You know, about...
0: I wonder whether uh, this all fits into the combination uh, between the intellectual, the physical, uh, they all have their own strategies, whether it's the choreography of chess, which is, of course, more of an intellectual car, or choreography, purely physical, of hockey, uh, and obviously the special choreography, which combines the two, the abstract and the real of, of ballet. It's all I know is that um, they, again, I hate to generalize, but where you see, you know, they say, put your money where your mouth is. The Russians have invest a lot uh, in certain um, areas, which they rightly feel they are proud of because they've made so many accomplishments in. And uh, when Ballet was threatened, uh, Walensky argued, and to some extent he was successful. He knew he was a former law, I mean, he never practiced law, but he still remembered. Um, He made the case that uh, brilliantly, very deftly, that, well, the revolution, let's be honest, what's revolutionary about it? Well, one of the things uh, is the liberation of women So they said the emancipation of women and they wouldn't have to be home. They could work and they could all, well, Volinsky then started using that idea of the emancipation of women as being something radical and revolutionary to, well, who who are the greatest stars of Russia? The women, the ballerinas. I mean, you wanna talk about, again, agency and, power and effectiveness now again he would then obviously know how far he could go and how far he couldn't go and so he said well all right you know we could we could have a more heroic ballet uh he didn't quite say it doesn't have to be some of the themes and the topics like Giselle you know which was so precious but we could do you know and of course to some extent he Again, he really was a was a seer. He he already could could predict what the Russians call dram, drambalets, this dramatic like Spartacus, where you know the plot is everything, and it's not as ethereal or as abstract, certainly as white ballet as Balanchine. Uh, so that um, he knew, he felt that uh, maybe instinctively. Russians of almost whatever political cast had a pride in dance, dance performance, and that should be saved and nurtured, not quite with the same vocabulary as he had engaged in before the revolution. And so he, um, he knew how to deal with this, and to some extent, he, he, he was convincing about salvaging this great theater uh, and holding on to it to provide the kind of excellence in dance performance that you know workers could appreciate—that it was more universal than just this ethereal abstract. And so, to that extent, but I again, I I don't know what you do with it. These are general, but I know when I got to Russia, it seemed to me that people got very worked up about. Hockey couldn't get a ticket. Literally fanatic. Chess, my God! I got off the plane. It was February first, nineteen seventy-three. I was the only foreigner on the plane. There weren't many people to begin with, and I go into this airport that looked like it was, you know, in the middle of nowhere, and yet it was Leningrad, a major city. And there were all these soldiers sitting around playing chess. I, I couldn't imagine. I mean, that was something. What's wrong with this picture? I could never imagine that. And then when you get to town, no, I didn't go to sports, but of course, oh, yes, ballet, you know, the hottest tickets in the world. Baryshnikov was still there. Um, So it's, who knows? Um, They do take a pride uh, and 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 an understandable pride in in dance. Of course, they're terrific in so many other forms of art, but it's something that I really came to uh, appreciate. And uh, so... um, Again, I I'm a little reluctant to leave that as a as a topic of, but I've done what I can, and I I'm, I'll do other things.
1: Well, I I the, this book is just absolutely fascinating. I thought it was going to be a book all about ballet, and and it is, but it is so much more. Um, and so I, I certainly appreciate all of your efforts. I, no. I have a a bit of a crush on, uh, on him right now um, uh-huh. because he is so controversial uh, and it, it, almost curmudgeon it sounds like in some yes. of his feelings, but his, his fascination with the body and deconstruction of, of ballet and um, this book was so much more than just about ballet. So I, I absolutely thank you so much for, for writing this book and for taking the time to, to spend this interview with me. It's been amazing.
0: I'm so delighted. It's always nice to have an audience. Uh, and I think he, he maybe wrote it for people like you, interested in the arts, uh, particularly women in the arts, uh, and someone who could appreciate him on his level who also has, uh, and that's another story. I mean, it's an interesting story, uh, a more feminist approach that is, you know, the last thing I may tell you, if you have another five minutes Yes, please. Uh, publishing. You know, I submitted the manuscript to Oxford. And before I even submitted it, I spoke to some colleagues and they said, you know, Stanley, be careful. Women in dance, you use the word women and you're going to open up a Pandora's box because there's nothing here about feminist theory. And I was nervous about this book because the first one Although I have to say, I like the second one better for the reasons you may be indicating. It's so much broader. There are so many other issues. The first one, you could use it in women's studies. You could use it in dance. But its range was, I think, narrower than the second one. Uh, And although, obviously, in the first one, women are front and center, as I said before, uh, they're part of a larger Uh, a picture of of the performance, although he does go into some detail about certain women. So my colleagues, certain colleagues at Stanley proceed with caution. And again, one of the exciting, exhilarating things, liberating things, but also the terrifying things about moving into these fields is they're like minefields. You don't know what the heck is gonna happen. So I sent this out and sure enough, I get these readers' reports. And they're women. No question. As a matter of fact, they had their fingerprints all over them. They don't sign them. But I, I, it's a small, I know the field well enough. I get, uh, oh, yes. Oh, what an honor. Oh, yes. But we're very sorry. Each individually without, no, we're very sorry. But no, you can't. No, we do not recommend publishing it because where is, where's the whole feminist? There's nothing here about feminist theory and performance theory. Not that Walensky was a feminist or knew it, but we really think that this has to be, no, this has to be changed. Well, so I wrote to the editor who knew, you know, he said, never. I said, you know, I'm not sure I want to get into this. My God, what do I know? Well, he said, no, you know, you have to do some more things. And, you know, the the procedure is that eventually you have to write a critique of the of the readers' reports. And if they recommend something, you either say you'll do it or you won't do it. And so I thought about it and I figured, you know, once again, I've used the expression, don't look a gift to us in the mouth, where will I go? And so uh, I spoke to a, a colleague or two in women's and gender studies. And they said, we told you, we told you. Anyway, I sent my response to the editorial board which was respectful, but a little cranky. And I said, you know, I'm not a trained, I mean, not only am I not a trained dance critic, I I, I don't want to write a book called Feminist Theory for Dummies, where am I going? Well, we don't mean this. And they gave me some suggestions as to where to go and what to read. And this was gonna take months. This is not something you do in a few weeks. In some senses, it was a retooling. And so, course, I showed the recommended list to a colleague of mine. <laughs> I, I, Well, Stanley, you know, look at the last date, the last year of publication, 2010? Because I was called by some of these people on the editorial board, or no, one of the readers said, it looks as if Professor Iberwitz hasn't read Criticism after the 1960s. Where is he on Feminine? And I I said that, you know, you can be dev- again, I, I'm 70 years old. I, I, like, I never read Criticism. because I wear that as a badge of honor. I showed it to my gender and women's critic. Oh, really, Stanley? Is that what they said? Well, when was the last time they read feminist criticism? What about they're speaking in binaries? We don't talk about binaries anymore. And so they were laughing. They said, sure, do what you like, but they're out of date also. Well, I have to say, I grinned and bared it, as it were. I said, I'm going to do it. I sat down. Three or four months, and I read and I read and I read a lot of feminist criticism, performance criticism. Some of it was just outrageous, but most of it, I almost want to compare myself to Walensky and how he respected these dancers, although he himself was not a dancer. I learned something, and I don't want to sound sanctimonious, but again, if you're asking what the project means and what I got out of it personally, it's nice to know even at 70, you can have worlds opened up to you that you either were happy to close, happy to ignore, or never knew about. The fact of the matter is, after four months of reading dance criticism, feminist approaches to women's bodies and women's careers, I learned so much and I was able to, because then they accepted. I was able to do what the two readers really wanted me to do. And that is to show how Walensky's writing and Valinsky's career, not to criticize it for what it wasn't, but how it opens up into some other areas, which can teach us a lot about dance and women on stage. And so I added another four or five pages to the introduction, single-spaced, And I have the section now, and I I was thrilled with it, uh, because what it does is to expand the the scope of his inquiry and say, you know, of course, we can look at it from uh, Greek and Roman culture and 19th century Romantic culture, but we've learned so much more now about the way women see themselves and the way we're being asked to study women not in a kind of again patriarchal or masculinist not as objects you know so that was an added that was an add-on to this that i really really enjoyed and i'm just hoping that uh, i've gotten some nice feedback um so we'll see but thank you very much for taking an interest Uh, i'm delighted